Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us, the way of salvation that you've provided for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning to to study your word. And we'd ask that you would open our hearts and minds to its truth and its truth only, so that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So please turn with me in your Bibles to our text for this morning found in Daniel chapter 1. We'll have uh, scriptures on the screen as well, but uh, I uh, study from the uh, New American Standard Translation, and that may be a bit different from what you have. So the scriptures on the screen will be from the New American Standard, but you may wish to look at your own translation as well. A review of recent articles describing some of the issues facing Canadians today finds a sizable list, such things as the decline in mental health, abortion laws, gambling addiction, violence, prostitution, poverty, the economy, social policy about drugs and alcohol, access to weapons, racial discrimination, and LGBTQ rights. We can add to this list the concerns reported incessantly in the media about climate change, global pandemics, the war in Ukraine, and natural disasters. Accompanying all this, of course, is the constant bombardment of messages on social media platforms. So-called influencer marketing has exploded, with more than 50 million people around the world now considering themselves to be influencers. It's become the fastest-growing type of small business. And a survey found that more than twice as many kids want to grow up to be a YouTube star than an astronaut. It was reported in 2022 that 720,000 hours of video is uploaded to YouTube every day. In January, TikTok reported 1 billion active users, and the app has been downloaded over 2.6 billion times. A sobering thought is that each one of these social media posts presents a message, some overt and explicit, but many covert or implicit, hidden beneath layers of advertising or entertainment. This barrage of information can be confusing and and even misleading. And so with the reality of our culture in mind, this morning, our focus will be on what Scripture has to say about how a follower of Jesus Christ is to live in today's world. We could title this message, Spiritual Living in a Secular World. Our focus will be on Daniel, an example of someone who was surrounded by the pressures and influence of a society that didn't obey or even recognize the one true God. And yet, he never compromised his faith in God or his integrity as a believer. If our focus will be on what Scripture has to say about how a follower of Jesus Christ is to live, then first let me explain what I mean by a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so the obvious question then is, who are these sheep? Or a better question, how do you become one of those who hears Jesus, is known by him, follows him, and has given eternal life. This is essentially the same question that a jailer in the city of Philippi once asked Paul and Silas in Acts 16. 
He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? To this simple and direct question, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. To believe in the Lord Jesus means to first believe he is who he claimed to be. The Apostle John wrote in John 20, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Second, it means to believe in what he did. Paul summarized the work of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And to the Romans, he wrote this in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, you will notice that salvation comes only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gives his sheep, his followers, eternal life. It is not earned or received as a reward for living a good life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. However, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you will also serve him. Paul, writing to the Colossians, says this in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Colossians 1 explains, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Jesus said in John 12, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And so that brings us back around then to our objective this morning to learn what the Bible has to say about how a follower of Jesus Christ, one of his sheep or one of his servants, is to live in today's world. Daniel was a man who was surrounded by a pagan society, and yet he pleased God with his integrity. David spoke about integrity in 1 Chronicles 29. He said, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. What is integrity? It is defined as soundness of and adherence to moral principle and character. It means the state of being whole. If you remember your mathematics, the same Latin root is also found in the term integer, a whole number. It means untouched or undivided. To have integrity is to be the same person all the time no matter who is looking, no matter who is around. To always behave in the same manner, to do the right thing, no matter the situation or the impending consequence. In 605 BC, the crown prince of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, led the first of three invasions of Judah. Babylon was the world power at the time, with an empire that stretched from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea and then to the area north of the Mediterranean Sea. About the time of that first invasion, Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, died. So he and his conquering armies then took the best of the people and objects from Jerusalem, including significant religious objects, to bring back to their own temples. 
So our text begins in the year 605 BC with that first invasion and captivity. Let's look at our text in Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of the Lord. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Very early in this book of Daniel, in fact, in the second verse, we see a statement that introduces a theme that runs throughout the book. We see Daniel's perspective on why this invasion and the subsequent defeat uh, by Babylon happened. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, there is some irony to this statement because of the meaning of Jehoiakim's name. Jehoiakim means God caused him to stand or to be established. Or in other words, God had made him king. And now all that changes. We see here that Daniel's perspective is one of God's sovereignty. That word sovereign is defined as having supreme rank, authority, or power. Being above all others in character, importance, and excellence. God is sovereign. He created the universe, including this world and everything in it. He orders everything and rules over his creation with absolute authority. It is interesting to note what one commentator says about this truth, and I quote, No doctrine is more despised by the natural mind than the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Human pride loathes the suggestion that God orders everything and rules over everything. The carnal mind abhors the biblical teaching that nothing comes to pass except through and according to God's eternal decrees, end quote. We like to believe that we are the ones in control of our lives and no one else is. But the Bible says that everything that exists in the universe exists because God allowed it, decreed it, and called it into existence. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Ephesians 1.11 tells us, according to his purpose, he works all things after the counsel of his will. 1 Corinthians 8.6 proclaims, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, here's an important question. Why is a clear understanding of the truth of God's sovereignty so important for the followers of Jesus Christ who live in this world? Simple. It affects our trust in God and our obedience to Him. For instance, how do we respond when events occur in our lives or around us that upset us or our plans? And what does that reaction tell us about ourselves or our view of God? Let's look again at verse 2, where we're given some significant information. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that's Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. This act was full of very powerful symbolism. These circumstances seem to indicate that the God of the conquered country was, was not powerful enough to do anything about the invasion. If you could take the sacred items from another God's temple and put them in your own God's temple, 
then your God must be superior. In other words, my God is stronger than your God. From all appearances, it seemed to the Babylonians that their God was superior to the God of Israel. And this is what the average person in Israel may have concluded as well. Now, before we look down on the Israelites for their weakness, let's ask ourselves, how do we respond when circumstances seem to indicate that God is powerless against evil? Day after day, we hear or read reports of human tragedies, horrific crimes, and horrible sinful acts. What do we think about all this when evil seems to triumph and proceed unchecked? We have the example of others in Scripture who face similar circumstances. In Psalm 13, David asks, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Let's look at another group. Do you remember the response of the apostles and the early church when Peter had been imprisoned? How did they respond? They certainly believed in God's sovereignty, didn't they? After all, they called an all-night prayer meeting. In Acts 12, we read the story of how an angel came in the middle of the night and led Peter out of jail. It would seem, though, that even Peter couldn't believe that this was happening. He thought he was dreaming. But when he realized that he really had been rescued, he went to the house where they were holding that all-night prayer meeting. Let's pick up the story in verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they'd opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. It would seem that in the midst of our trials, our tendency is to think only in natural terms. We either doubt God's omniscience or his omnipotence. We might think that either he doesn't know the trouble that we are facing or that he is powerless to intervene. And when God does intervene, after we have been praying earnestly, we are amazed, just like those in that all-night prayer meeting. Why are we so surprised when God answers our prayers? Does it have to do with what we really believe about the absolute sovereignty of God? This is surely something for us to reflect upon. Let's return to our text, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Daniel was part of a group selected as the cream of the crop in Judah and therefore taken captive. This group was chosen by the Babylonians to be future administrators and to manage the other exiles and captives. This was a very clever plan. The Babylonians knew that they would have individuals who uh, understood the Hebrew language and culture and also who were already recognized as potential leaders by the Jews. This would help to ensure the allegiance of this new group of immigrants. Let's look at the selection criteria. There were three. The first is physical, verse 4. Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking. The Hebrew word youth here means 
a young man not over 17, so likely between ages 13 and 17. Some scholars say that these boys would have been about 14 years old because that was the age at which uh, Babylonian youth entered their school system. They had no defect, or in other words, they were good physical specimens, and they were good-looking. We understand the power of looking the part, and we value that characteristic. A powerful attribute for potential leaders is their appearance. Think of King Saul. 1 Samuel 9 says, Saul was a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. And so it goes today. In the 31 presidential elections in the United States between the years 1900 and 2020, 21 of the winning candidates have been taller than their opponents, while only nine have been shorter and one was the same height. On average, the winner has been three centimeters taller than the loser. The book Dress for Success by John Malloy was a bestseller about the effect of clothing on a person's success in business and personal life. He documented that the way you look and the way you dress has an impact on your success in the workplace. But this isn't anything new. God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How do we judge others? God tells us we look at their outward appearance. We are influenced by a person's outward appearance. Something to remember. The second criterion was intellectual. Verse 4 again, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. To show intelligence would be the equivalent today of saying someone has a very high IQ. Someone who is endowed with understanding is someone who is a quick learner. We would say, oh, he's really sharp. They're able to gather information, process it, and make wise decisions. The phrase discerning knowledge means someone who is well-educated with good critical thinking skills. The third criterion was social, verse 4 again, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. This characteristic describes someone who had social skills and graces, self-confidence, poise, charm, able to function well in high society. Now, some historians suggest that there were between 50 and 75 of these young men who had been selected. What an opportunity for them. A full-ride scholarship to the very best school around, Babylon University. Tuition, books, clothes, room and board all covered, and a graduation recruitment into a good career in the civil service. Let's continue on and see what happens next. Verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Here we are introduced to Daniel and his three friends. The Babylonians had a three-year, three-part plan to brainwash their captives. The goal was to fully assimilate these young men into the Babylonian culture. The plan was to obliterate their past by changing three things. First, their language and education. Why? Well, 
Apart from the obvious reason, nothing seems to dissociate someone from their culture faster than losing their language. Community leaders who wish to maintain the cultural ties of immigrants to their homeland recognize this. That's the reason the local school board in Windsor-Essex offers heritage language programs in 17 different languages today. Second, their food. Again, we can ask why. If you can change someone's lifestyle for the better by giving them something of value and, in fact, raising their standard of living, you create a sense of obligation and dependence. Providing someone with rich, sumptuous delicacies when they may have been eating rather bland food and perhaps a limited amount of it on a forced march from Jerusalem to Babylon would be quite a change. And once they became accustomed to this smorgasbord of delights, the thinking was then that these young men would not want to leave or to give up what they now had. Their loyalty would be ensured. Third, their names. Why? Well, their old and new names had significant religious meanings. Taking away one's name that referred to their god and giving them a new name that referred to a Babylonian god would be a constant reminder of the conquest and my god is stronger than your god. The ancient people of the Middle East liked to incorporate the names of their deities into their male children's names. Look at the name of Daniel and his three friends. Do you see any similarities? Look at the suffixes or endings. Two have L endings and two have Yah endings. The suffix L refers to Elohim, one of the names of the God of Israel. The Hebrew name that Daniel was given at birth means God is my judge. He had been renamed Belshazzar, meaning Bel protects his life or Bel protects the king. Bel was a word meaning Lord and was used especially for the god Marduk, the Babylonian king of the gods. They had many gods and Bel was supreme. To the Greeks, he would be called Zeus. To the Romans, he would be Jupiter. Mishael means who is like the Lord. He was renamed Meshach, which is probably a variation of Misha-Aku, meaning who is like Aku is. Aku was the moon god. In Hebrew, the suffix I-A-H, or Yah, is short for Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Jehovah is another way that people say this. Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. He was renamed Shadrach, which perhaps means command of Aku, the moon god again. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. He was renamed Abednego, which is perhaps a variation of Abednergal, servant of the god Nergal, the god of death, pestilence, and plague, the so-called lord of the underworld. These four boys, now remember they're just in their early teens, and all the others face tremendous pressure to conform to the Babylonian culture. Their country had been invaded, they had been taken captive, and were away from home, now enrolled in a three-year intensive program of secular education. As we think about that, let's consider our own situation. Today, Christians, especially young people, face a whole spectrum of pressure from a godless society. Is it really possible to resist these pressures and to not conform? To not compromise your integrity? To not succumb to the temptation to be disobedient to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's look at Daniel as our example. What pressures to change did he face? Well, the first was his education, and this he accepted. Second was his name. He also accepted this. The third was his food. 
And this he did not accept. Why could Daniel accept the first two changes, but not the third? Well, first, education is not all bad. It is true that you must be cautious about what you are learning and continuously evaluate it against God's truth. But you can study things in secular institutions and learn ideas, but not adopt them if they do not agree with God's word. What about a name change? Well, here's something interesting to note. Later on in Daniel 4, we read that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged Daniel's true name and honored the God of Israel. And some 60 years later, just before the Medes and Persians defeated Belshazzar, the queen of Babylon still referred to Daniel by his Hebrew name in Daniel chapter 5. Although she knew of Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to change it, she called him Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar. A name that someone chooses to call you is an external thing. You don't have any control over what others call you, but when someone calls your name, it doesn't change who you are. But the third change, eating the king's choice food and drinking his wine, that was a different matter. There were no specific prohibitions against the first two changes, but there were specific commands and law against this third change. God had instructed his people not to eat food sacrificed to idols. Exodus 34 says, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite you to eat of his sacrifice. God had also set dietary Levitical standards for his people. Leviticus 3.17 says, It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. Leviticus 11, very specific. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. Pork was a delicacy in Babylon, and horse meat was also eaten. According to God's law, neither animal was permitted for food. Once again, Daniel and his three friends, all in their early teens, faced tremendous pressure to conform. Everyone else, now remember, there may have been 50 to 75 others in their classrooms, in their dining hall, and in their dormitory. All the others were apparently going along with the, pro- with the program. So how does Daniel respond? He didn't give in and he didn't compromise his faith. How did he do this? Well, first, he made a critical decision. Daniel 1.8, but Daniel made up his mind. The New King James here reads, Daniel purposed in his heart. The ESV says, but Daniel resolved. The Bible tells us that our mind is important. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart, or your mind, with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. 1 Chronicles 28, Know the God of your Father and serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. In Matthew 22.37, And He, that's Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The truth of the matter is that our behavior, and therefore our obedience, starts in our mind with our thoughts and attitudes. That's why Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Setting our mind is an act of the will. 
we choose or we decide what we will think about. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The Living Bible paraphrase reads, Fix your thoughts on these things. So we see what Daniel does in verse 8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. He did this in the face of great personal risk. He chose to stand against the culture, to defy authority, and to not succumb to peer pressure. In doing so, he could have lost everything, including his life. We see in verse 10 that his supervisor, uh, Daniel's supervisor, refers to this. He was worried that even he might be beheaded. But in spite of this great risk, Daniel chose to honor God through a life of obedience. He lived a life of integrity. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now, notice how Daniel refused. He didn't say, uh, you know, uh, I have a very sensitive stomach and uh, I just can't eat rich foods. Uh, Would you please excuse me? He didn't give an excuse about why he didn't want to participate. No, he tells the truth and he uses a very strong word, word, defile. He explains his situation to the commander, verse 8. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He makes an appeal to the commander. And notice the commander doesn't say no, but rather presents a concern from his perspective. Now, here we see the threat of God's sovereignty appear again in verse 9. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then he would make me forfeit my head to the king. Notice the commander is hesitant, but he doesn't say no immediately. He liked Daniel. Why? God had granted Daniel favor and compassion in the commander's eyes. You remember we see the same thing with Joseph's situation in Genesis 39. God gave him favor in both the sight of Potiphar and the chief jailer. And so from Daniel's perspective, God is sovereign. It is God who is responsible for this. Not his own good looks or his intelligence or his charm. We see that the commander wasn't really concerned if Daniel ate the food and drank the wine. No, he was really only concerned with results. He had to graduate men whom the king would want in his service. So he apparently just decides not to respond to Daniel's request. Daniel was not deterred, though. He had made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Notice, he doesn't throw up his hands and say, Oh, well, I tried. I really didn't want to defile myself, but now I guess I'm going to have to. No, look at what he does next. He maintains his resolve and proposes an alternative, a 10-day trial to his direct or immediate supervisor. Verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials, that's Aspenaz, had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. 
Now, let's follow the steps that Daniel followed in his appeal that might be helpful to us in a similar situation. First, Daniel asked permission from one in authority. He didn't just go ahead and do this on his own or start a hunger strike. He believed that God was sovereign and could work through the authorities. Second, Daniel had the correct motive and attitude. He wasn't combative. He didn't have a defiant, holier-than-thou attitude. He wasn't angry or arrogant. No, he was polite and respectful. Third, he understood and was concerned about the goal of the one in authority, that the others, that he and the others be healthy. In a sense, then, he looked for a win-win solution. And fourth, Daniel honored his supervisor's authority and let him be the judge. We see the result in verse 14. So he, that's the supervisor, listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Well, aside, that doesn't seem to compute with me. He went on a vegetable and water diet and he was fatter afterwards. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And now God does a miracle in 10 days. Let's face it, we all know that a 10-day diet of any kind is not going to make that much of a difference. But God intervened here so that the four young men passed with flying colors. Not only were they healthy, they were healthier than all the others in their class. And once again, Daniel tells us that God is sovereign. And here he points out that it was God who gave them knowledge and intelligence. Verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then we see the long-term results in verse 18. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. It's the end of the three-year program and time for the final examination, which is an oral defense before the king. The king finds them to be without equal. There was no one else like the four of them. In fact, they are ten times better than all the king's experienced scholars in his entire kingdom. The reference to ten times better is the use of a literary tool called hyperbole. The point is they weren't a little bit better. No, they were far better. And of course, the four are appointed positions in the king's personal service. Quite an honor. And notice verse 21, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Daniel maintains this excellence for 70 years, and even into the next administration of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, how did Daniel and his friends interpret these results? What was their perspective on why this happened? In other words, why they graduated summa cum laude and were given the very best appointments in the civil service? Was it because they were naturally intelligent or because they had studied diligently, because they had been polite and respectful? No, they took no credit for this. And this is an important point. As Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. And James 4.6 says, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
In this passage, we see a powerful demonstration of God's sovereign will coupled with an individual's personal commitment to obedience in humility. When we are challenged to compromise, why do we worry about the consequences of standing for the truth? Could it be that we do not really believe in the sovereignty of God and we don't trust him for the outcome? Have you ever wondered where the limit to your conviction lies? What would make you cave into pressure? Would it be embarrassment? The fear of being different? How about a loss of friendship or status? What about a financial cost, a loss of income or a mispromotion? Considering all of this, we can ask an important question. What would help me, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to stand firm, to be a person of integrity, no matter the situation, no matter the apparent consequence? Or in other words, how can a Christian live in a godless world without becoming like the world? Certainly, it begins with a clear understanding of and a firm belief in God's absolute sovereignty. Beginning as a young teenager, Daniel lived approximately 70 years in a pagan culture away from his home and the influence of his parents and his church, and yet he continued in faith. He maintained his integrity and never compromised. He worshipped and obeyed the sovereign God. We can find instruction in God's word that can help us to maintain our integrity. Let's look very briefly at seven of these principles. First, we must make a conscious decision to be obedient to God. This doesn't just happen automatically. Daniel 1.8 says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Another example, we looked at Joshua, who made a conscious decision and declared in Joshua 24, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Second, we must diligently use our minds to seek the truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 instructs us to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. What does it mean to be diligent in handling the word of truth? The word diligent means to be careful and persistent in work or effort. And of course, the word of truth is God's word. So how are we to, to handle the study of God's word? It is to be a careful, ongoing process, not a haphazard or one-time event. Third, as is inferred from 2 Timothy 2, we must measure or evaluate our behavior against the absolutes of Scripture, the Word of God. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? Fourth, we must ask God to provide us with the power to be faithful. Look at the next verse, verse 10. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Fifth, we must internalize the word of God so that it saturates our mind. Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart or my mind that I may not sin against you. Sixth, we must do everything for the glory of the one sovereign God. There can be no exceptions simply because our our circumstances make it difficult. Let me repeat that. There can be no exceptions because of difficult circumstances. This must be our motivation and our standard of behavior. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And seventh, we must be accountable to and encouraged by other believers. 
Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Daniel had a group of three friends. We see in this book that he was accountable to his three friends. He shared his concerns and problems with them, and they prayed with him and encouraged him. Let us follow Daniel's example then to recognize God's sovereignty and to be humble and obedient to his commandments as we seek to live lives of integrity that are pleasing to the one sovereign God. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word to see this example of Daniel. Father, help us to fully understand and comprehend your sovereignty. Have it affect the way that we trust you to not be deterred by circumstances that are surrounding us, but to see your hand in it all. Father, help us to be obedient then to your commandments. Help us to study your word diligently so that we may understand and then obey. Father, we thank you again for this truth from your word this morning. And we thank you for the the Holy Spirit that you've given us to help to understand your word and then to obey it. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.